Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH. I'm Sherry Alexander. We want to welcome our guest today, Laura Lipman, author most recently of the novel Sunburn. Welcome to Writers Forum, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited, and we know you're preparing as we tape this to come down to our Tennessee Williams Fest. You, but yes, you're, yes, you're, that's you're from Atlanta originally, but you grew up in Columbia, Maryland. I was born in Atlanta. Uh, my family moved to the Washington D.C. area when I was two, but I grew up mainly in Baltimore. I went to high school in Columbia, but Baltimore is really my home. We read a lot about Baltimore. In fact, I've read all your books, and I feel like I've spent some time in Baltimore, even though I've only visited. You, That's always nice to hear. Your um, father was a journalist, and you became a journalist for a while. Uh, that's correct. Um, I've just passed the milestone of having been a novelist longer than I was a journalist. I was a journalist for 20 years, um, began writing fiction while I was at the newspaper. But So my first novel came out in 97, and so now it's 2018, and I can say I've been a novelist for 21 years. Well, congratulations. I'm just a journalist, but I can uh, imagine how difficult it must have been to do both at the same time. How did you do that? I got up early. <laughs> you know, that as simple as it sounds, that's what it took. I had to get up every morning and spend about two hours writing before I went to work. And by doing that and by working on weekends and not taking a lot of vacations, I was able to write seven books while working at the Baltimore Sun full-time. But it was a drain, and it was a drag, and it wasn't a particularly healthy way to live. And I'm really glad I got lucky and that I got to leave and do this full-time. I know not everyone gets to do it, and it's not even necessarily a meritocracy. So I'm really glad that I was one of the people who was lucky enough to just be a full-time novelist. Well, it's not just luck. I mean, you've won every kind of award for um, mystery and suspense writers, the Agathy, the Edgar, um, Seamus. So obviously, it's a lot more than luck involved here. You've really got a wonderful Well, you have to gift. show up to get lucky. I guess that's what I always tell students, is that there is a there is an aspect of luck in almost everything, but you can't get lucky until you've actually done some of the work. No one's going to call you up and say, oh, why don't you just start writing short stories for The New Yorker? We think you're great. I mean, you have to have put some time in, have some pages, and eventually have some books. Well, I love your books. Um, let's talk for a few minutes about Tess Monahan. Is she sort of an alter ego? or? I don't think alter ego is correct. Maybe invisible friend, younger sister, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, particularly in the way we see the world and the way she expresses herself is probably pretty close to the way I would express myself if I had less impulse control and wasn't worried as much about the way, um, if I wasn't as worried about the ramifications of always saying what I think. But we have very different backgrounds, um, very different backgrounds, and that was intentional. I kind of wanted to keep my own family out of it. I didn't want my mother and father and my sister to have to answer to people who thought that they were members of the fictional universe. So whereas Tess 
has a lot of overlap with me. The her world does not. Her her family life does not. Well, it's Baltimore. I mean, I I feel like Baltimore for you is like um, Savannah. You know, Midnight in the Garden of Evil. They could talk about your books because you you paint such an interesting picture. In your real life, are, do you row boats? Are you into that? I rowed very briefly for the University of Baltimore club team. I gave that hobby to Tess Monahan because I was really aware of the fact that, you know, credibly, it's very difficult to portray a woman who has a lot of physical strength. Oh, Tess Monahan's never won a fair fight with a man. That's just the way the world works. Men tend to be stronger. But I did want Tess to be as credibly strong and athletic as possible. And I knew from the little bit of rowing I had done that someone who rowed seriously and kept at it would be pretty strong and have both endurance and a lot of muscle. Well, some of the things that happened there, I assume this is true. In, in Tess's, um, one of the books on on Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, do people really come and put flowers on his grave? They, Someone did. And the ritual stopped for a while. I believe it started again this year, but I'm not 100% clear. It definitely ended a few years ago. There was a lot of mystery around it. There were notes left, but no one really seemed to know who was doing it. And some of the notes left did seem to indicate that it was a baton that had been passed at some point. I witnessed it one year. I witnessed it in January of 2000, and it was an appropriately eerie and amazing thing to have seen. But but did anybody know who was doing it, or was the person disguised? The person was not only never unmasked, there was definitely a concerted effort by the people from the local post society to make sure that no one would ever interfere and that the visitor would never be unmasked. There there was an understanding that the mystery was part of the beauty of the ritual, and it was impossible to disturb it because it was on private property. So there were tight controls about who could be on the property the night of. But you got to hide behind well, the curtain. Well, I asked, and, <laughs> and I promised to be discreet, and I promised not to interfere, and I promised even, and this is unusual in a newspaper writer, I promised to obscure certain elements, which is to say, obviously I couldn't put anything in the newspaper that was false, but I could omit detail that was would have identified that would have been the person to people who wanted to interfere with the ritual. Well, I'm just fascinated with with your mixture of true life. Uh, for instance, you you have little references to New Orleans uh, now and then in your books, and you've lived here for a while, or do you still have a house here, or what? We we have our house there, and we still kind of consider ourselves part part time New Orleanians, although the the part-time is increasingly real since my daughter entered school. New Orleans is a place that I adore. It's not a place that I feel compelled to try to capture as a writer. 
there's so many fine writers who have done it and will continue to do it. It's a tricky place to write about. There are a lot of layers there, and I don't kid myself that the fact that I've been lucky enough to live there part-time since 2009 means that I know that much. you got to go pretty deep to understand that city. Well, we should mention, I guess, your husband, David Simon, um, produced not only The Wire but The Treme um, after our late unpleasantness, as I call it, our storm. So um, you, that brought you to spend some time here. Yeah, that was what brought us there. It was, it was pretty rich in irony, the, kind of the worst kind of irony. In 2005, the weekend the storm hit, or the weekend after the storm hit, my husband was scheduled to fly down there and start looking at property because he had long had a dream that we could have a house in New Orleans, and he felt like you know, we were at a point where we might be able to afford it. And the storm came, and you know, the strange, bizarre economics of the real estate post-storm kept us from buying any property for a while. But then in 2009, he got this pickup for the show Treme, and he said, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to buy a house. And I said, great. <laughs> and we did buy a house. And I remember, this is, I mean, this is how much times have changed, because I know there's not as much inventory anymore, and there have been these big changes in New Orleans and these concerns over Airbnb and of almost a carpetbagger effect, I guess, if I can use that term knowing that some people would use that term about me, probably. No. But in 2009, <laughs> when we flew into New Orleans to look at houses, we looked at almost 30 houses in less than 36 hours. Oh, my goodness. And we came in on a Thursday afternoon, immediately began going around with a realtor. And the next day, spent the entire day with the realtor and then got on the plane the next morning and I remember it was really, really obvious. We saw a lot of interesting houses. It was sort of a great um, crash course in uptown New Orleans, just looking at real estate and the choices that people made. <laughs> but um, it was obvious to us which house we wanted, and we, we really love our house there. Well, I'm just becoming a provincial. I've been here about 30 years, and I just... I'm so tickled whenever you have a little reference to New Orleans. You, you use the term lanyap. I mean, even though these people are all in Baltimore. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I used it in Sunburn, but in Sunburn it's used by a man who's very well traveled. So we can imagine that Adam passed through New Orleans at some point and learned that word. Well, before we get to the newest book, you've done about a, a dozen or so um, Tess Monahan books. Um, she's a private investigator, and you've you've done almost that many standalone books, as we call it. One I particularly was interested in is Wild Lake. Was that not your high school also? Wild Lake was my high school. I did live in Columbia while I went to high school, and Wild Lake High School was my high school. But what interested me in Columbia as a location was not so much, well, it was the place, but also the nature of the place and what Columbia was like in the late 70s, early 80s. Columbia was an extremely well-intentioned place where people sincerely believed with, you know, rightfully so to a certain extent, they believed they were creating a better way of living. 
that they were onto something in terms of creating an almost utopia sounds too strong, but certainly they felt they had created a progressive community that had embraced certain core values. Um, values of integration, of integration not only racially, but in terms of class, where there was a commitment to keeping greenery and having open spaces. And it was sort of the opposite of what would come later in the 80s with the development of McMansions. The houses there were attractive but modest. Uh, they weren't huge. The idea was that you were supposed to know your neighbors. One of the things in Columbia was that there was a community mailbox on every street where you didn't have your mail delivered to your front door. You had to go to like this, this kiosk of, of boxes and pick up your mail because in that way you would interact with other people. And, you know, community and the idea of being invested in community and that people should know their neighbors and love their neighbors – that was all a really big part of Columbia. And as I said, it was it was good-hearted and well-intentioned, but it still couldn't necessarily transcend some of the sexist and racist ideas that were part of life in the late 70s. They're part of life today. Who are we kidding? They just keep changing shape and changing forms of expression. I mean, in terms of dealing with bigotry in our culture, we've made some advances, but what advances the most is sort of the language we use to shield our bigotry. We learn to be ever and ever more covert about it and we were, we were real say interested. the right things, but um, I don't think we've made as much progress in terms of really being comfortable with degrees of dif- differentness. We were real interested, um, Rouse. The, the, the development was, you know, quite considered quite the, no, the model for maybe mm-hmm. other communities would copy it. And now from your version of it, we see, as you said, it didn't exactly turn out the way some people hoped. I'm wondering, did you have any backlash when this book came out? It was 2016. No, none at all. And I did an event in Columbia and... I think people, first of all, saw that I did believe that the founders of Columbia were well-intentioned. They weren't hypocrites. I mean, it is interesting, though, and this is on the very first page of Wild Lake. Um, Tim Rouse is a great man. I met him. I wrote about him, and I admired him. I think his heart was in the right place. But the bottom line is, is that Columbia had its roots in a rather stealthy, underhand operation, which was that they knew that if anyone figured out why all this real estate was being acquired, the prices would jump. So, you know, a Connecticut insurance company helped cloak what Rouse's intentions were, what, you know, what the Rouse company was really up to. And I find that so interesting because, again, I really do think Jim Rouse was a sincere, modest, well-intentioned, honest man. And I think in his life, he walked the walk. But then again, we have this fascinating fact that how does Columbia begin? It begins in a deceit. Hmm. 
And I just find that interesting. And I think people, first of all, I mean, I'm sure people always have something negative to say. It doesn't always get back to me. But I think people found that I was thoughtful. And if anything, writing that book helped me to recognize the parts of Columbia I admired the most. And it reconnected me to a pretty idyllic adolescence. I had a good time at Wildlife High School. And I'm a better person for having gone there. And I, it's hard to imagine that I would have done some of the things I ha- I've done if not for Wild Lake. It was definitely a school, and it was you know open space at the time. It was definitely a school that encouraged creativity. It was a good place to be sort of an out-of-the-box kid. I had a really vibrant group of friends. And one, things I, one thing I've often said to people is that In my experience, while there were certainly kids who were popular and cool, there was no mean girl problem in Columbia when I was growing up. I certainly never felt, because I wasn't running with the jocks and the cheerleaders, that I was being mocked or bullied in any way. It was a real kumbaya kind of school. Well, I love that book, but let's talk about your new one, which is not Tess Monahan and... Sunburn. It's um, everybody's describing it as a noir uh, kind of book, and yeah, yeah you, I think that's fair. You you mention in the book about James Kane, um, but the difference is instead of a mysterious man coming to town, we have a mysterious woman comes to town. Yes, a mysterious woman and a woman who also subverts some of the expectations about a femme fatale. She's quiet. She is somewhat mysterious. She is straightforward, but she omits a lot of details about her life. And that's a little bit different. She's, she's not a honey trap. She would prefer to steer clear of men altogether if she could. Well, but all we that's know not at how the life beginning. works. All we know at the beginning is she's sunburned, and, and yeah. we, we know that she's left her um, her husband and her daughter at the beach, and she ends up in Belleville, Delaware, just by chance. It, it, there's not really a Belleville, Delaware. No, this the town is entirely of my invention. You know, it is. It could be one of a dozen small towns in the southern part of Delaware that are kind of inland from the beach. Well, she does meet a stranger, Adam Bosk, and we find out more and more about him. When we're talking about a book like this, we don't want to give away too much um, of the mystery and the suspense, but she, more or less, what the kids would say today, hooks up with, with another kind of mysterious stranger that just happens to end up in the same town. And they're working at a... Um, a diner, I guess it is, the hi-ho. I mean, I, I call it a tavern, a tavern with a restaurant, but the nomenclature isn't important. Well, he sounds like a phenomenal cook. I mean, his background. Well, he's, he's a trained cook, That's but that's something he's trying to sort of keep under wraps because if he reveals that he's actually been to the you know Culinary Institute of Arts up in Hyde Park, that suggests something very different about him than the persona he's trying to project. 
had one question. I had read a book, um, Hush Hush, which was one of your novels, where uh, a woman uh, leaves her child in a car, and here's a woman who's left her child with her husband at the beach. Um, does that seem to come up more a couple of times in your in your well, writing? I, you know, all sorts of mothers are in my novels. I think in Hush Hush, the central question of Hush Hush is whether the woman who has left her child in the car was doing something calculated and then hiding behind the cloak of postpartum depression, or did she really have postpartum depression? That's the, that's the driving question of the book. You know, how calculated is this woman? What has she done with intent? And what has really been a result of, of madness? Now, Polly and Sunburn, there's no question. This is a calculated thing. She has been planning this for a while. She doesn't just get mad and storm away from her family at the beach. No, she's been preparing for this. She has a plan. The plan is somewhat disrupted after she lands in Belleville, and she is at once someone who can form incredibly long-range plans, but she's also pretty good at rolling with changes, at improvisation. She can think pretty quickly on her feet, uh, something that is discovered much later in the book. But she's always thinking on her feet. It's something she's been required to learn how to do. She hasn't had the nicest life. And at this point, she's pretty much out for herself. So, I mean, I don't see parallels between Polly and the character in Hush Hush. I do see parallels between Polly and the main character in the next book I'm writing, although she's a proper upper-middle-class housewife whose child is a teenager, and when she walks out of her marriage, it's her son's decision not to come with her. He's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go off on this new life. I like it here. I'm going to stay in the house with Dad and go to my regular high school and have my regular life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll have no part of this journey of self-discovery you're on, Mom. Not that he can articulate those things, but... You know, I am, I am, it is fair to say, I'm interested in the role of mothers in our culture, in popular culture, in books, in film and literature. There's, you know, still just kind of one right way to be a good mom. It's like they're good moms or bad moms in a lot of books. And the world I live in, I just know moms. And I've had days when I thought I was the worst mom in the world. <laughs> and I've had days when I think I'm the greatest mom in the world, and you know nobody seems to notice. But it fluctuates, and it doesn't really define who I am. The, the, the next book, is that back to Tess Monahan? No. I thought it would be. Interestingly enough, though, um, Tess's mother shows up in it. The next book is set in 1966, so Tess Monahan isn't even born yet. And the um, protagonist, is a, is that still going to be a reporter? The protagonist is going to be someone who wants to be a reporter, a very fine distinction. She's actually a clerk at the newspaper, and she's angling to get into a reporting job despite having zero experience at it. 
Well, anybody can be a journalist, right? That's what a lot of people seem to think. <laughs> when I tell people I'm a journalist, they seem to think that. Um, you also had a, a story come out um, recently. Uh, a, it was a collection, Biblio Mysteries. I enjoyed that, the children's bookstore. Oh, the book thing. Yeah, the book thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because you said when you said it, you had a story come out recently. My mind was racing because at the end of the year, I published two stories in kind of unorthodox places. Oh, really? The first one was a, a booklet that was written expressly for the Mysterious Bookshop in New York City, and as their annual Christmas gift, holiday gift, to their patrons, they asked someone to write a short story that, that's then given away to people who make a certain purchase, you know, like hit a certain dollar amount in their purchases. And so I wrote a story for them called Snowflake Time, which was about a disgraced cable news pundit. I mean, it was <laughs> actually written and finished before the great wave of Me Too stuff started, but it was it, it was pretty much on the mark. And I also um, wrote a story that was published online in a wonderful website called The Rumpus, called Seasonal Work. And Tess Monahan does appear in that story, but the story is not from her point of view. She's a minor character in it, and the story is actually told from the point of view of a teenage girl who's watching her itinerant family struggle through another Christmas. Well, I look forward to finding those. Um, I still remember when Girl in a Green Raincoat was in the Times Magazine. <laughs> that was that is going back almost 10 years now. And it's funny because, I mean, no one really invents anything. And you see these trends come along and declaim, well, I was doing that back when so-and-so was happening. But it is funny to me because, of course, we've come through this great um, deluge of girl books that were, of course, inspired by Gone Girl and then Girl on the Train. But we've also had this deluge of books featuring unreliable narrators. And there's this huge book out right now called The Woman in the Window that takes Rear Window as its setup which, of course, is what the girl in the green raincoat did. Right, so I was right. like, wow, I feel like I was a little bit ahead of you the curve ahead on of both yep. of those things. Well, I just enjoy your writing so much, and I look forward to your um, visit here, and I look forward to these new books. Um, as I said, you're so well-received with all these awards. Publishers Weekly was describing Sunburn um, in a starred review, and they said, this is Littman at her observant, fierce fiercest, best, a force to be reckoned with in crime fiction. We, we've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest today, Laura Lipman, author most recently of the novel Sunburn. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.